ever stop to wonder which sounds could tell the story of your life? Which singing bird would capture a moment of your memories? What are the sounds of your time? In the 1920s and 30s, Penryn must have been a loud town. Hawkers and merchants would use their voices to call our attention to their wares. The sound of cattle on the move would be a weekly occurrence. Boats would blow horns you could still hear in the valley all the way from Falmouth Bay. People would gather in corners as they went about their day, exchanging stories, laughter, cries of surprise. All of it would make the air vibrate with sound. Sound we would be getting better at capturing. But there is a particular sound I want to bring into your imagination. One attached to a sport, which was the life of the young man in this town. A sound you don't need to have taken part of this sport to know. A sound which has transcended rings and contests and became part of our popular culture. Can you guess which bell I'm referring to? In this episode, we tell the story of one man who lived a life between sea and the ring. We examine how Cornish newspapers began the year in the 1920s, and we take a look at how the Open Spaces Act of 1906 encouraged a survey-making initiative in the town of Falmouth. My name is Xerezade Garcia-Rangel, and this is On the Hill. Have you guessed the bell? On Monday 14th of May 1924, a new baby was born to the Kut family in Penryn. His name was Roy, and he would go on to become a beloved waterfront character of 20th century Falmouth. Little Roy was born to the big family of Mrs. and Mr. Jack Kut, and he shared his young life with four sisters and three brothers. The family was always connected to both Penryn and Falmouth. During the early years of Royce's life, they lived on a houseboat at the Turnpike, on the site that is now the Falmouth Marina. It was there that the family experienced a horrible tragedy. Roy's eldest brother, Jack, excited about his grandparents coming to visit, went into the road and was hit and killed by the Penryn Falmouth bus. The sorrow that must have fallen on the family is unimaginable and not wanting to stay on the same place where Jack died, the Kutz moved to number five bank cottages in Penryn. Life went on slowly, and the Kutz felt the hardship of low wages and little income, which was not uncommon in Cornwall at the time. Royce's father worked at the Falmouth Dogs, and Roy and his brothers would pick small jobs as errand or delivery boys to help support the family. In a Falmouth packet publication called Roy Coote, Boxer, Talkmaster, Sailor, which stands as a collaborative account of Royce's life between journalistic biopic and involved interview, this time in Royce's life is described colorfully. A view of Penryn in the 1920s comes through as an active, if modest town, 
full of life, full of noises, an active market scene, corners where people would gather, Roy on a bicycle with a giant basket at the front, flowers poking out of it as the young boy braved the hills and delivered the goods. Summer carnivals would bring colorful floats and fancy dress to the town. And on Christmas, when each child got an apple, an orange and a bag of sweets, the Coote family would join the celebrations. Roy comments on the importance of this holiday for them. Church was always a big thing at Christmas. We were all dressed up for Sunday school and church, but it was something we wanted to do. Both the Coots and the town did what they could to get through life and provide for each other. And this seems to have been a sentiment that stayed with Roy as he grew up. Penryn then would have looked much like it does now. The clock tower in the middle, splitting Market Street, the old buildings leaning into the road, the Falmouth Hills in the background. Every Wednesday would see cattle being driven from the station to the local field for grazing. The ancient town of Penryn, or Trelibel as it appears on the Doomsday Book, predates Falmouth by the small sum of 400 years. And although Roy Coote would eventually move to its neighbor, he loved Penryn and its people, embraced the life it offered him, and continued to consider himself a Penryner all his life. In those lively streets where he moved about, there was always talk of boxing. For you see, in the 1920s and 30s, Penryn was recognized for his boxing scene, Jack Coote, Royce's father, was quite interested in it. At the best of times, Roy could make up to half a crown delivering for Mrs. Elizabeth Truscott, the market gardener. But if he took part in boxing, he could earn five shillings and anything the crowd threw at the ring, what was called nobbins. This could amount to 12 shillings, almost as much as a dock worker would get on a weekly salary. Jack Coote saw the potential of supporting Roy's interest in the sport and what he could do for the family. I boxed because I wanted the money, but the likes of Gary Cooper, another Cornish fighter, would have boxed whether they were paid or not. They loved the business and Gary kept in contact with boxing through promoting when his fighting days were over. Roy Coote, quoted in Roy Coote, Boxer, Tugmaster, Sailor, Falmouth Packet Publishing. This is where the legend of Roy Coote begins. It goes like this. The young boy would get up early in the morning and accompany his father to the docks, trotting behind Jack's bicycle. He would then return to town with a bike, go to school, do his chores, and then ride back to Falmouth in the afternoon when it was time for Jack to come home. A final jog back to Penryn would seal his training. Being fit, is key for boxing, and this carefully designed workout routine would go on to pay dividends. But before we learn more about Roy Coote's boxing career, let us stay a little bit longer in that time, almost a hundred years ago, on the mirror decade to the one we're about to embark upon. As we move closer to the future, let's look back at the 1920s. One of the things I find endlessly fascinating about old newspapers 
It's the glimpses of the past I get in them. For this episode, I got the chance to go back to Falmouth Library, and whilst keeping social distancing and my mask on, I got to do something I love, scroll through microfilm reels. I was on the search for one name, Roy Coote, but as it often happens in the searches, it was the articles, ads, and news around my search that brought this time to life. I was looking at what Falmouth and Penryn were like almost a century ago. Seeing that Roy Cood was born in January, I decided to take a look at the first newspapers out on this month across the different years. The weekly Cornish Echo, which was out every Friday, first showed me reams of ads in the cover pages. It's interesting to see how things were done then. Ads up front, where we would now see news, Dramatic and lengthy headlines, hours maybe shorter, but, well. <laughs> and overall, as the technology needed to catch up, less photos and more illustrations. It would be after World War II where photos begin to take over the Cornish Echo. Local newspapers are a treasure trove. They are more personal than national ones, because individuals have spaces to come through. But although decades, wars, advances, diseases, and the internet have come by, what I find most poignant of it all is how familiar these times were. Now, there are obvious differences, of course, and here at On the Hill, we relish in them. But if you take a closer look, it can sometimes feel as if we're talking to each other about the same things over and over again. Anglo-French Differences Breakdown of Conference The Allied Conference in Paris on Reparations broke down last evening, the British and French premiers finding it impossible to reach agreement on the plan to be adopted to secure payment from Germany. The disagreement, however, was entirely of a friendly character, and the conference ended with mutual assurances of goodwill. There were numerous consultations during the day, which was characterized by several dramatic incidents. Prior to the final failure, a new British note was submitted, and the Italian delegates put forward a compromise plan, but neither of these efforts proved acceptable. The Cornish Echo, January 5th, 1923. Big discoveries get a good seat too. What to us now seems matter of fact and maybe obvious, was at the time a big breakthrough, which enabled us now to benefit from the descendants of these technologies. Listen to Alex read out one of such discoveries related to the work we do here at On The Hill. Photographing the human voice, marvelous discovery. A remarkable scientific invention, the work of a well-known London professor, will be on view at the Model Engineers exhibition, which is now being held at the Royal Horticultural Hall, Westminster. In addition to wireless telegraphy, telephony, and photography, there is now added the wireless photography of sound, and visitors to the exhibition will have the opportunity of not only listening to wireless in its various applications, but to have and take away with them a photograph of their own voice. The Cornish Echo, January 5th, 1923. Another thing you often find in old newspapers are reflections or complaints about the way things were changing. Things were moving fast at the beginning of the 20th century, 
technology shifted quickly away from industries, war scenarios, and big warehouses, and it grew into our lives, closer and closer to ourselves. Inevitably, perhaps, this altered the way we interacted with each other. And whereas now we might ask ourselves, why don't we call each other more frequently? Or, what was the world before we were so connected? Other questions were being raised then. Why we don't write letters? I have no statistics, but I should guess that every year fewer letters are written and that every year letters tend to become shorter. This is partly because good manners are by no means on the increase, and partly because the temptation to the out-of-doors engaged in games or other activities grows steadily stronger and is more easy to gratify. Daylight saving has hit summer letter-writing very hard, but long before the advent of Mr. William Willett, other enemies had been at work. E. V. Lucas, in January 1923, in Good Housekeeping. We are sitting at the edge of a tough year, and there has been a lot of speculation about the major changes on our behavior that we will see becoming permanent on the future. Will we look back at the 2020s and wonder what we left behind in the 2010s? Is there anything you miss from the times that came before? As we hold these questions unanswered, let's go back and learn a little bit more about Falmouth and its cemeteries. Published on the 4th of August 1906, the Open Spaces Act aimed to regulate how certain sites were managed, looked after, and made available to the public. This piece of legislature transfers responsibility and ownership from trustees to councils, boroughs, and parishes, the land traveling from the hands of none to the hands of very few, inching closer to the public in the hands of institutions made to look after them. Burial grounds across the UK were transferred or made available to the public under the Open Spaces Act. Transfer of disused burial grounds to local authority. The owner of any disused burial ground may convey the burial ground to, or grant any term of years or other limited interest therein to, or make any agreement with any local authority for the purpose of giving the public access to the burial ground and preserving the same as an open space accessible to the public and under the control of the local authority, and for the purpose of improving and laying out the same. Open Spaces Act, 1906 This was not the case with Falmouth Cemetery, which was held by the parish and borough of Falmouth since the middle of the 19th century and onwards. The Burial Board continued to extend the cemetery by purchasing land of Lord Kimberley. Ownership and guardianship of this space was already in the hands of the town, as we have discussed in previous episodes. It is the case of the original churchyard of the town, however, which had been in dire need of closure, where we see the Open Spaces Act pop up. Most of the land of the churchyard of King Charles the Martyr and of their church itself, which seems to have been extended over the churchyard, was inconveniently crowded with human remains, as a rector claimed in 1853. The extensions in New Street and Gillen Street were also too busy for use, 
surveys of the churchyard and its extensions were meticulously produced across the years, signifying the closure of each of these spaces. In 1956, a document lists all visible graves in the New Street extension. The earliest grave recorded here is that of Frank Harmon, who was buried on the 6th of October in 1770. A document from the 1st of May 1963 records the survey of the graveyard extension in Gillian Street. This section is a steep slope and ends up the hill on Waterhouse Terrace. It is now an open green space you might scroll through on your way to town. The life of this space as a cemetery is still visible if you pay attention. The remaining gravestones have been tucked away against the stone walls. The former mortuary is now someone's dwelling. On the left-hand side of the entrance, you also find an empty coffin on a crypt-like space carved onto the hill. Maintenance of open spaces and burial grounds by local authority. A local authority who have acquired any estate or interest in or control over any open space or burial ground under this Act shall, subject to any conditions under which the estate, interest or control was so acquired, a. Hold and administer the open space or burial ground in trust to allow, and with a view to, the enjoyment thereof by the public as an open space within the meaning of this Act and under proper control and regulation and for no other purpose, and b. Maintain and keep the open space or burial ground in a good and decent state. Open Spaces Act 1906, amended by Local Government Act 1972, later repealed by the Local Government Planning and Land Act 1980. The survey records the earliest burials here in 1791, among the list of names, which reaches over 130, I noticed two names buried on the same grave, that of one Jane and Elizabeth Bennett. The Open Spaces Act has seen many changes and repeals since it came into law. The narrative of our contemporary places are intertwined with those of the past, and we remain curious, here at On the Hill, of how many other parts of this story we have yet to discover. In the meantime, let's go back to learn more about Roy Coote. Cornish boxing was thriving. Hundreds of fighters competed in local championships across the years, and in the newspapers, rugby begins to share space with boxing announcements. At Falmouth, the drill hall was at the center of the sport, and would see Roy could fight there across the years. This was a time where Cornish fighters were achieving national and worldwide success. Len Harvey from Stoke Clemsland was the light heavyweight and heavyweight champion of the British Empire and world light heavyweight champion in Britain from 1939 to 1942. He is remembered now in the International Boxing Hall of Fame since 2008. Ted Windle, Nipper Prynne, Eric Berryman, who eventually became Rose Manager, 
and Gary Cooper, who went on to become Roy's friend, were among the names you would need to contest with if you were a young boxer. The gym at New Street in Penryn was a thriving community for new and established talent. Boxing was the sport and interest of the town, and Roy began to train there. As early as 1933, when he was just nine years old, Roy appears in the drill hall among other boys. On those pre-war years, Roy kept fit, took part in different competitions, and helped to provide for his family. But soon the work came, and with it, the halting of these activities for John Roy, who worked in the troop ships for the duration of the war. Once the war ended, however, Roy resumed his boxing career part-time, fighting in average on a dozen contests a year. He concentrated on the local scene mostly, occasionally taking part in some contests in London. There was a marked difference between the boxing scene in the southwest and that of the capital, highlighted in this excerpt by a boxing writer of the time. Unfortunately, London is apt to consider this section of the country, the far west, as something like foreign parts, and for that reason, Coote has never had the opportunities which his merit has deserved. He rarely puts up an indifferent show, he's always willing to fight, and unlike so many of our top-ranking lightweights of recent years, he can hit and can take it too. With such assets as those, he should have been an official title contender months ago. However, it is not too late. He is still young and strong, and a few more turn-ups like the knockout of Roy Sharples will force him into the limelight. In October of 1951, on the sixth round of a contest at Derby between Roy Coote and Roy Sharples, the latter was knocked out, making it one of the successes of Roy's boxing career. This was a difficult life, one where the feats and successes were weaved together all of the time. A couple of years earlier, in November 1948, Coote would fight Cliff Anderson, the Cornish Echo sending him a message of support from everyone in Falmouth before the fight. A week later, this was the article that came through. Outclassed, says Roy Coote. He was just in a different class to me. That was the reason put forward by Roy Coote of Falmouth for his defeat when I discussed with him his fight with Cliff Anderson. I entered the ring very fit indeed, said Roy, but never before had I met anyone who hit like Anderson did. With regard to his future, he was definitely not going wholeheartedly into the fighting game. He was quite content with his job as mate of the tug, Northgate Scott. Coote only lasted three rounds, being down in the first for a count of five and hitting the canvas in the second round twice for counts of four and six. The Cornish Echo, December 3rd, 1948. Although talented and dedicated, and still remembered for it, for Roy Coote, boxing wasn't the only joy of his life. He loved the sea, after his experience in the Merchant Navy, and he carved a life connected to it, first as a deck boy and later as a skipper of the tugboat Northgate Scott. The Merchant Navy had provided a life of seeing the world, but Falmouth and the love of his family kept Roy close at home. I felt the tugs offered my family the security I wanted, and that proved to be the case. 
I worked on them for 40 years in the place where I wanted to be doing the job I wanted to do. I might have earned more money had I gone to London, but I might have lost out in other ways. Roy also took to the sea for recreation. He was a founding member of the Green Bank Falmouth Rowing Club, and as the team's captain, he would lead them on to become successful seaboat champions in the 70s. By then, Roy had retired from boxing after winning in Penzance in 1954 over Des Garrard. He had a pact with his wife that he would do so when he turned 30, hanging his gloves on a career spanning two decades and over 70 contests. In 1998, Roy shared with a packet this hindsight perspective of his time in the ring. There's no reason not to be glad to have done it. It's a dangerous sport. You can get into a lot of trouble. It was also a hard business because I had to train. Fitness is everything. More fights were won on fitness than ability. There were no point in going into the ring unless you were fit. I used to feel apprehension and get tensed up before a fight, but as soon as the bell went, it was gone. I knew then there was a job to be done. A family man, Roy married John Martin in 1947 and went on to have a big family of his own with three daughters and a son. Their happy marriage was actively involved in the life of the town and the sea and they went on to celebrate their golden wedding anniversary in 1997. Having a good home life is the foundation of a happy life. If you've got that, you've got everything. Roy Coote, quoted in Roy Coote, Boxer, Tugmaster, Sailor, Falmouth Packet Publishing. A year later saw the publication of the Packet's book on Roy's life, and shortly after, Roy died. He is buried in the newest part of the old Falmouth Cemetery. This is the story of a Cornishman who loved his town, who loved Falmouth too, their communities and their people. He is remembered in many of the ways in which he lived his life. Here is Adrian Markle with his creative response to the life of Roy Coote. To the waterfront. Roy's shins swung heavy and pendulous through the light dawn mist that came in off the Fowl River as he put his road miles in on his first real day of training for the national championships. He heard himself groan. It was too cold and his muscles felt weak and already too tight. He liked to run in the evenings if he had to run at all, but with the national championships coming up he was forcing himself to run to work in the morning and would do so every day for the next month. The discomfort was good for him and he liked to be reminded of how it all started, when he was a boy and his father had had him run from Penryn to Falmouth every morning with the sunrise. A bus groaned by him, the first of the day. He felt an eye flinch shut as it passed, and he stumbled and walked a few paces to straighten himself out. A man could drive his fist into Roy's face with every ounce of strength he had behind it, and Roy's eyes would stay open, alert, but a bus he didn't see coming still sent him twitching after all this time. When the bus curved with the river out of view on its way to the sea, he forced his feet on. Whoever he'd be fighting in London, they'd be doing the same. No time to take it easy. The sun was higher now than when he'd forced himself out of bed, but not enough to work any heat back into his joints or bring anyone else out onto the streets. 
He was alone in the thin, watered-down gold of the morning, just him and his footsteps and his breath. And then other footsteps and other breaths. He primed a fist and flashed a look over his shoulder. Not many people around who'd think it was a good idea to fight him, but you get dummied once and you never stop looking. Behind him was the Treginum boy, fat and heavy-footed, breathing loud. Roy knew who he was. He was tenish, big for his age, and quiet. No friends. The boy had heard somewhere that Roy was a boxer, and since then he'd seen him hanging around all sorts of places he shouldn't, just blank-eyed staring at him. Roy'd had to shoo him off the docks a couple of times when he'd piloted his tugboat in and seen him waiting, clumsily dodging out from under the feet of the other men on the waterfront, almost causing accidents every step. Roy stopped running and turned to face the boy, and he asked him, Your dad know you're out here? The boy stopped too. No, he said. Well, you should go home. The kid was still breathing heavy, and it seemed all he could do to raise his arms and pump his meaty hands out and back like he was working a series of levers. Serious, you should go home. The kid took a step toward him, eyes pleading. Roy felt his heart rate dropping as he stood there. All around the country, other lightweights were training without this kind of hitch and getting the good work in. When he got in the ring, it wouldn't matter why he hadn't. I gotta go, kid. The kid was still panting for breath, but he seemed to deflate. Okay, he said, and he looked down at his feet. Roy thought of his brother then. He hadn't been anything like this kid, but Roy still thought of him then, remembered as much as he could after all this time. When I get back from the national championships, maybe I can show you a thing or two, okay? The boy grinned. Yeah, okay, he said, and he twisted one toe against the pavement. Good, Roy said. But the boy didn't go home. Roy gave up and nodded to the kid and turned around and forced himself on. He kept trying to shake his head out, but it was hard to get back into a rhythm. He felt too painfully aware of the rusting of his joints, and by the time he left Penryn and crossed into Falmouth, he was flagging. He felt awful physically, and he was annoyed the boy had cost him a good run. But he fought on with himself, charging through Falmouth on legs that seemed to be struggling through water and barely noticing how the town was waking up around him, the whistle of kettles, the smell of bread. He knew the distance ahead of him, almost down to the number of steps, but it felt unfamiliar today, and he struggled on toward the docks, mouth wide and chest heaving, until he reached it and stood against the low stone wall by the sea, choking and gulping with nowhere left to run. He slumped down to the ground and sat with his back to the wall and closed his eyes. Sweat beaded on his temples and his hairline and cooled him in the steady stream of wind that dragged inland over his head. He sat until his breathing calmed and the sounds of the docks grew louder behind him. He knew he should get down there and get to work, but his legs weren't used to the miles yet and were quivering with weakness, and he let himself stay down on the cool stone for just another minute. Across the street, and as far down it as Roy could see, the Treginan boy plodded forward, head lolling, sweat dropping down off his cheeks, chugging out breath like a train going uphill. What had been annoyance for Roy was becoming something that bordered on respect. He felt the pain and weakness in his own legs and knew the kid's struggle was worse. He decided to wait to go down to the boat until the kid got to him, pat him on the back. The kid chugged slow down the road, feet barely coming off the ground until he was across from Roy. And then he turned to him, eyes almost closed in agony, but still searching across Roy's face. He'd seen that before in the ring. A few trucks passed between them on the road, but he didn't break the kid's gaze. Roy nodded. The kid's mouth split wide into a grin, and then he started coughing and covered his mouth with his thick fist. He stepped out into the street to cross over to him just as the second bus of the morning, the bus Roy took when he didn't have road work to do, 
roared down toward them. It was a distant memory, not even really a memory at this point, more a smear of an idea that was deep and red where it welled up from his childhood but grew thinner and paler as it continued along the line of his life. A bus run up onto the pavement, his grandmother curling over his brother's shape in the street. Roy started his voice catching, Hey, bus! Bus! The Treginan kid planted his feet and put his hand on his stomach, clenching his jaw and hunching over, fighting against the nausea Roy was all too familiar with himself. Hey, Roy shouted again. He didn't even know this kid's name, he realized. The kid didn't hear him, probably had too much blood pounding in his ears. Roy's legs pushed him up and forward automatically, though they were weak and his knee buckled. The palm of his hand planted on the road as he started forward to keep him from collapsing across the street himself. The bus's grill, like bared teeth, was taller than the boy, the eyes of the windows gleaming down on him. Roy's legs had shaken like this in the twelfth round against Leger and St. Austell, but he'd bitten down on his mouthpiece then and charged forward, coming out ahead on points to take the belt. He did the same here, driving forward, chin out, refusing to flinch from what might be coming at him. The kid was big, but he was still a kid, and Roy's arm caught him across the stomach and took him right off the ground as the bus shuddered behind them, its brakes squealing. He and the kid landed in a pile. The bus ran up onto the pavement beside them. The kid was white. Roy huddled over him, gave him a once-over. The kid was slow to react, took a minute to focus on the fingers Roy was shaking in front of his eyes like refs did to a fighter, waking up after a KO. Two, the boy said. Roy nodded and put his hand down. His tongue began to throb and he tasted the old copper penny of blood rolling across it. The kid sat beside him, pumped his fists back and forth like he had before, and Roy could see now that they were punches, awkward and slow and heavy, with a desperate, unconscious need. To the Waterfront was written by Adrian Markle. I got the chance to speak to Adrian about his creative response and Roy Kutz's life. Adrian, thank you for reading that to us. You are welcome. How was it to write about someone who used to be alive? Um, it was very strange. I also... I kind of gave up on that idea of it quite quickly, even though it's it's obviously literally true mm-hmm. that he was alive. I wasn't, I don't feel like I was writing about a person. Yes. Because I don't think, I mean, certainly within my abilities is something that is fiction can really do. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I was writing was to an information pack that you provided me with yes. several details of his life. The one that Tony Casey prepared. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I did sort of almost no other research beyond that. Uh, what I was writing to or at or trying to capture was um, a situation, a scenario, mm-hmm. um, the details that were on that pack sort of arranged themselves quite quickly in my mind into something story-shaped. And so while there are almost certainly similarities, um, some at least, Mm -hmm. uh, between the real person and the character in the story, the character in the story is just the person that I needed to create to fill in, to fit the space that that story left for protagonists. Yes. And not the other way around, if that makes no, sense. Not just trying so, to replicate Roy. Right. But. I came from the story and found the character rather than finding the character and finding the story. Yes. Um, my, uh, my sort of, this very sort of legendary undergraduate creative writing teacher in Canada used to tell us that 
um, there's a difference between capital T truth and little mm-hmm. t truth. Mm-hmm. And little t truth are the things that are technically correct. Right. Um, and capital T truth is the sort of universal human experience. Mm-hmm. And that um, we frequently need to ignore or straight up lie about the former in order to get to the latter. Right. Um, and so that's what I that's sort of how I approach this, which is mm-hmm. that I know that it's based on a real person, but I did not know that person. Yes. In the time that I had to write this, I could not possibly get to know that real person. Mm-hmm. And even if I did, I could not possibly have sort of faithfully articulated their essential nature in 1500 words. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I can do, or what I tried to do at least was to explore certain elements that were important to them that I am also familiar with Mm -hmm. and just look at what that might mean for not him specifically, but to just somebody who is alive and living in the world like we all are. That's right. You talk about things that were specific to you and there's a... There's a magnificent physicality about this story. We are with him. We're sweating with him. Things tremble and we feel that. Can you walk us a little bit through that? Um, Presence is Mm -hmm. incredibly important uh, for me in fiction. Um, Being in a moment in particular. um, When I write, I always write uh, sort of things that are very limited temporally. Mm -hmm. Um, My short stories are usually, they take place over a couple minutes, a couple hours, a couple days at the max. Mm-hmm. My, the longest short story I've ever written in terms of the time that it covers is one week. Um, and my short novel time. that I'm writing for my PhD is a couple, is two months. Um, the novel that I wrote for my master's, which is terrible, was mm-hmm. um, a couple weeks. Um, right. I like to be sort of very focused in creating a specific moment Um, Because I think that there's a lot that you can mine from that. But Mm. to create a moment, um, I think that you also have to be very physically present in it. Otherwise, you are are out of it. I think that physicality um, and physical awareness are things that um, help us connect to people in places because they are Mm. very concrete things that as readers we can connect to. Yeah, we can Um, recognize. Yeah, like it's it's much easier to, to recognize... Uh, the the feeling of sweaty palms mm. than the the general concept of anxiety, which is different for every person. But yep. sweaty palms are sweaty palms. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to look to physicality a lot, um, especially right now because my PhD novel is also based on um, a professional fighter, which is why you yes gave hashtag. It to me. That's the reason why we found Adrian to write about Roy Cook. That's a very la- that's a very long hashtag. <laughs> I like long hashtags. <laughs> Just follow me on Twitter and you'll find out. Okay. I do. Um, I don't. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, you know, it's that's the sort of headspace that I'm in right now, especially. Yes. Because, um, because you need to, I think, or at least I've been made to believe that you need to choose a language mm-hmm. for a text that yes. represents the sort of language of the world that the character is living in. Mm-hmm. Um, And so right now, because I'm writing about um, an aging sort of former professional fighter whose body is falling apart on him Mm -hmm. um, and whose primary method of expression for quite a long time was physical expression. Yes. um, Right now, most of the language I use in writing is the language of the body. 
-hmm. And that's something probably that I won't be doing forever because whatever I'm writing next probably won't that's require it. Yeah, um, that makes but sense. But that's, that's where I am now. Can you tell us a little bit from your own research and experience with writing about um, boxing fighters? Why is it important to look at that topic in literature? Um, I mean, I suppose the answer to that is for the same reason that it's important to look at anything, mm. um, because they are representations of lived experiences. And I think that that is the, the point of literature, is to sort of broaden our perspectives, to allow us to experience different lives or parts of life that we wouldn't normally get to experience on our own. Um, in terms of why fighters in particular, what's important about sports literature in general mm -hmm. um, and about boxing literature in specific, not more so, but just yeah. what we're talking about, yes. is not the sports. Sports are, they're just, it's sports. There's, they're, they are a vehicle to explore other things. Mm -hmm. um, what's important, why should people read about boxers? Um, because boxers, for instance, are primarily um, people that are drawn from a low or limited socioeconomic background. Mm -hmm. um, and the stories of poor people and working class people um, like myself are important to read because Absolutely. they make up the majority of society, mm -hmm. but oftentimes don't get a voice because stories about boxers um, are often also stories about men. And mm -hmm. what I don't mean is just sort of like default masculine characters that then just go about their lives without ever sort of thinking about um, any kind of sort of gendered politics or privilege or limitation, but rather the sort of limited, small sort of, I guess, I don't want to, I mean, I suppose toxic masculinity, but more specifically just this sort of very small masculinity where mm -hmm. men can't talk about this and they can't act like this right. and they can't do that or yeah. say this or want this publicly. Um, and for a lot of people, the, the sort of their relationships with other people in that arena and the way that they are allowed to express themselves mm -hmm. in that arena are different than they are allowed to do outside of it. Um, Thomas Page McBee, um, just wrote this incredible book called Amateur mm -hmm. um, with Canongate. And one of the things that it talks about is, at length, I think, is the way that these sort of, these these men who are either hyper-masculine or are attempting to be mm -hmm. either for real or at least in show hyper-masculine, um, the way that they communicate with each other so much differently in this sort of arena in well, not in the arena but in in the sort of gym where they no longer are expected to prove right. their masculinity to each other because they're already in there they're already yes. getting punched in the face every day <laughs> that's the proof done and so mm -hmm. that there's a sort of vulnerability or a lack of pretense there mm -hmm. after that that they don't get in public that's quite um, interesting and i think that that's something that boxing fiction does leonard gardner's fat city is amazing for that in showing the sort of stunted limitations of these people who feel trapped in a very small area. Yeah. And the novel doesn't solve that, mm -hmm. um, but I think it shows it, and I think that that's an important thing to know. Yeah. It's obviously not true for everybody, but it's definitely of true course. for some of them. Of course. In this story, we have a moment, as you described it, of Roy in his routine. Um, he's famously known for running from Penryn to Falmouth training in the morning. Yeah. Have you tried that route yourself? No. Um, <laughs> I hate running. 
I do run. I do run a little bit because I have to. Um, mm-hmm. Because right now I'm sort of, I spend every single day sitting in my office right. at Penryn trying to finish my PhD. Mm-hmm. And if I don't go to the gym and run in the middle of the day or before I go home, I'll go crazy. Yes, that um, makes sense. But no, I do not enjoy running. I I can only do it if I'm like watching television, like watching something on my phone yes. or listening to an audiobook, um, something that is not running. Yes. Um, it's the only way I can do it. I've loved, I've always played sports. I love sports. Um, I played rugby for a long time. I did just as a complete amateur and not in any way seriously, mm. um, sort of kickboxing and boxing and jujitsu and stuff right. like that. And I love doing those, but if it's running for the sake of running, mm. I can't bear it. Uh, so I no, I, I have not done that. <laughs> but I have, you know, I've walked it. I walk it all the time because I like a walk because mm. my mind can go somewhere else other than what I'm doing. Yeah, um, that's a nice walk as well. It's a lovely walk. Mm. Um, I assume it's a miserable run. Just <laughs> like most yes, runs. it would be with a gradient in between. I think that's one of the, That's one of the values of fiction is that I can just make other people do this stuff. Yes, but I'm not make him sweat myself. as much as he can. Yeah, my, uh, a friend of mine, Paul Russell, said that. I don't know if he this has come from him or if he was paraphrasing, but he said that when we write fiction, um, oftentimes that is our effort to aspire to be better than we are in real life. <laughs> um, so maybe I wish, yeah, I I, maybe I feel like I should be the type of person who would do this run, but I am not. It made me want to do it, to well, be honest. Good. This idea of the morning and how beautiful that relationship between him and the boy. And I was like, oh, that's that's a precious thing, a precious routine mm. to, to have. Um, between you and yourself and then then seems to be leading to a tradition of the activity that he does mm. um i wanted to talk to you about falmouth because of the stories i've looked at so far for this project this is the one that is about someone local okay and it's about the the city itself it's happening physically in the city itself mm. and you're a resident of falmouth am I, I right yeah well i Penryn, but Penryn. it's the bits basically I mean, they touch. So yes, the they are twins. They're more. They? I would consider themselves more two regions or two halves of the same town yeah, rather two than two valleys of the same town. Yeah. Yes. Talk to me about Penryn. <laughs> well, I'm Canadian. Yes. And I mean, this is true probably everywhere, but I think it's especially true there, or at least it feels like that to me coming from Canada. Mm-hmm. But regionalism is really important mm-hmm. in literature. And again, being specific, being in a moment, and moments require a place. Yep. Um, picking a place and then trying to to get to it. And so since I've been here, I've written most of my stories that I've written have been or have come from Falmouth right. um, or Cornwall in some way. I've got something in the Corner Stories anthology and mm-hmm. a couple other things that are, are sort of in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just um, I sort of draw inspiration from the things that I see. I have got a mm. really bad brain in that the second <laughs> sure, I don't it's terrible I'm the worst the the second I stop seeing a thing right I don't think about it's it out anymore. of your mind yeah. so Canada is away all the way across well, that's, the Atlantic that's that's in my dreams but it's not right. in my mind if right. that makes sense yes 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 um I dream of Canada but I wake up in Falmouth and I do most of my writing when I'm awake mm-hmm. um so that's just you know I mean, again, what I was responding to very specifically for this job was the brief that I got. And the brief had details about here. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, I just, I don't know. I think that if you're going to get specific, then be specific. And here's the place that I know the best at the moment. Mm -hmm. And when I eventually, if I move somewhere else, then I'll be writing about that place. Yeah, I have found Cornwall 
it's kind of seeping into my writing without realizing. And the, the writing that I'm that I'm doing now is based here. It's based on the beach. It has the cliffs there. The wildlife, the it seagulls is, are everywhere. It's incredibly <laughs> inspiring it as is. a sort of location. And I also yeah. think that it has a really, perhaps not sort of globally known in that any small place that isn't sort of central is going to get marginalized. But mm. Cornwall does have its own quite strong literary tradition. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, it is. It's It sort of has this history of being mm. this... And artistic tradition as well. Environmental yeah. muse. Mm-hmm. Indeed, from Virginia Woolf, William Golding, all the way to Adrian Marco. Uh, well, that's a <laughs> list that I'm on now, apparently. Why not? Um, I wanted to ask you about routines. So yeah. we are with Roy here in his kind of morning legendary routine. Mm -hmm. Do you have any routines for your life? Do you find that useful for writing? Writing is a job. Um, Indeed. Writing this, you know, this 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 idea of writing is like you you buy a plane ticket to to India, and then you sit in a in a hut <laughs> on the beach for several weeks, <laughs> drinking wine and sitting in the sun, and somehow you get a book or prize out of it. But it's <laughs> writing's a job. You just go to work and do your job. Yeah. Um. So I live. For the reason I live in Penryn rather than Falmouth is because mm. my office is in Penryn, and so mm. every day I get up and I walk into work and I write. Yep. And then I go home and I do something else. Then I go home and I watch TV or I play video games or I do something that isn't writing because I'm mm. done work for the day. Mm. Um, those hours are much more miserable now that I'm trying to finish my PhD, <laughs> but the concept is still roughly the same. Mm. I get up, I go to work, I sit at my desk, and I do my job. Mm -hmm. And right now my job is, is critical rather than creative primarily because that's right. the part of the PhD that I'm on, but it's the same process. Mm -hmm. Show up and then start work, and then when you're finished work, you go home. You go home. And okay. I suppose, like, right now I'm lucky enough to be in the position where I can do that every day. Mm -hmm. um, and that is my sort of day job. Um, but if it wasn't, mm -hmm. then it would still be the same. It would just be different. In yeah, that, you'll have to find a place for it. Yeah, so day. instead of, like, going to work and then writing at work, you mm -hmm. write on your lunch break. You write uh, after you get home from work. You write mm -hmm. after you put the kids to bed. You write in the morning before you go to work. You write on the train on the way to work. Mm -hmm. um, it's routine that is the most important part of it. Yeah. Um, because the idea of waiting for inspiration, <laughs> um, especially yeah. if you're like me and you have no inspiration, um, Clearly, you have inspiration. No, I mean you gave me the pack, and I responded. <laughs> that to is it. inspiration. But if you had, right? <laughs> but, but if you hadn't given me the pack, I never yeah. would have written this. Mm. It was it was a response. It didn't it's come response, from me. Yes, it just came back from me. Yes, exactly. We're glad that it did. Now I have a final question. It's a question I'm asking everyone. What would your gravestone say? <sighs> I would hope that I don't have a gravestone. Um, mm -hmm. Partly, like. This is going to sound really dumb and probably like too, well, actually, for what is a sort of, I, what is a totally apropos question that everyone else probably just gave you a totally reasonable response for. <laughs> um, but I think that in one of the things that we're learning in 2000, I mean, we've been learning it for several years now, but, you know, one of the things that's incredibly clear in 2019 is that just because we've been doing something for some way, mm -hmm. or sorry, rather, just because we've been doing something some way yes. for some time doesn't mean that we should continue to do so. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have a ton of land anymore that we can afford to do nothing with. Yes. Um, so partly, I would say that I hope I don't have one because actually, I really don't want to be remembered, I don't think. Right. Um, I don't like the idea of a legacy. I don't like the idea that 
people or anybody would be wasting their the actual lives that they have mm. like thinking of me just go and do living things <laughs> be alive um but also just god what a waste of a piece of land mm. just chop me up and sprinkle me in the forest chopped up well let's be useful can we burn you first <laughs> well i mean you can but that's a waste of energy yeah that is just be yeah, useful more if release. i can't be useful in life i'm gonna try and figure out a way to do it when i'm dead okay i mean maybe you don't have to chop me up leave me whole but you yeah. know just I, i won't be doing the chopping no you've, someone else can. you've asked me so you have taken responsibility for doing <laughs> no, it i'll make sure that it gets done okay. that's as far as i'm gonna go well you're happy fine. with that it's better than nothing <laughs> all right thank you thank you This interview was recorded last year and it features Adrian as he was finishing his PhD. He has now successfully passed his PIVA and has been awarded his PhD unconditionally. Congratulations! Thank you for listening to the episode 11 of On The Hill. Thanks to Adrian Marco for sharing his creative response and talking to us about Roy Kut. Stay with us as on each episode we discover a new story, learn more about the cemetery, relate the historical account of someone who once lived, and share a creative response from one of our writers. On the new year, we will bring you the last episode of Season 1 of On the Hill. It's a fascinating story we've been looking forward to sharing with you for a long time. As we get there, we're so very close to achieving one of our goals this season. Can you help us by spreading the word about On The Hill? Tell a friend about us, rate or review our show, and help others find us. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook at We Are On The Hill. And drop us a message, we'd love to hear from you. On The Hill is written, recorded and produced in Falmouth by me, with the help of amazing local people and a host of talented writers. Research about Roy Cood, Falmouth Cemetery and Penryn and Falmouth History by me. Fragments from the Cornish Echo, The Farm of Packer, Roy Kud Boxer, Talkmaster Sailor by Packer Publications, and The Open Spaces Act of 1906, read by Alex Horn. Creative Piece by Adrian Marco. You have heard Bessie Smith's cover of Downhearted Blues, recorded for Columbia Records in 1923. The music was composed by Alberta Hunter and Louis Austin. You have also heard Flamengo, composed by Bonfiglio de Oliveira, in homage to the Club of Regatas of Flamengo and Rio de Janeiro. It was recorded in 1931. And you have also heard Iphigenia Naoli, a ballet performed by the Berliner Stratzkapelle and composed by Christoph Willibald Gluck. Music arranger was Felix Motti and the conductor Leo Bletch. This episode was edited by me. Our theme song is Precious Things by We Are Muffy. Join us again next month and next year for our next and final episode of the season. I'm Sherezai Garcia Rangel and this is On The Hill. Precious things shine.